the way they protect us. And God, we thank you for blessing us with fathers. But at the same time, God, we lift those up to you who may not have the relationship with their earthly father the way they want to. Or maybe their earthly father has been taken away from them. Or maybe they want to be a father, but for whatever reason, they can't. God, we lift those people up to you. Pray that this will be a day of comfort for them, even though it can be a difficult day. And God, most of all, we thank you for the fact that even though at times our earthly fathers fail, no matter how great we think they are, you don't fail. That you are the perfect father, the best father we could ever ask for, in spite of what we do with our earthly fathers. So God, thank you for that. And I pray that the fathers here, I pray that we will look to you as the example of how to raise our children how to discipline our children, how to encourage our children, how to love our children, that we will show that love for them that you show for us. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad you've chosen to worship with us here this morning. Uh, We've been going through the Gospel of Mark for 10 weeks now. Some of you may be thinking, it doesn't feel like 10 weeks. And some of you may be thinking, it feels like 50 weeks. That's okay. Everyone's different. But I do want to tell you that we are approaching the end of our study through the Gospel of Mark. We are going to be in Mark this week, next week, and the week after that, June 30th. And then we will be done with the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in the Gospel through the end of this month. And in July, we will be starting a new series on the book of Psalms. And it's going to be a six-week series. And if you know anything about the book of Psalms already, you may be thinking, how in the world would you cover Psalms in six weeks? Because there are 150 chapters in the book of Psalms, by far the longest book in the Bible. So how in the world do you condense that into six weeks? Well, the answer is you don't. You don't totally cover the book of Psalms in six weeks. But there is a certain way to make sure you cover all the bases as best as you can. And the way that we're going to do that is that the same way there are genres of music, like rap or rock, country, bluegrass, there are all kinds of genres of music. There are genres of psalms as well. There are different genres of psalms. And so we're going to look at six different genres, one genre per week. And that should give you a pretty good idea of how most of the psalms tend to work. And I'm really excited about this series because out of every book in Scripture, I think Psalms might be the book that it is most easy to relate to. Because the people who are writing the Psalms are dealing with the exact same things that you and I deal with. They're dealing with stress. They're dealing with anger. They're dealing with happiness. They're dealing with sadness. They're dealing with joy. They're dealing with anything and everything you can think of. They deal with the same stuff. And so we'll be looking through the book of Psalms here in July, starting July 7th, and I hope you can be here for it. I think it's going to be a really great series. So with that, being that we are approaching the end of the Gospel of Mark pretty quickly, I did want to take today and kind of get us all back up to speed on where we are, what we've done so far, what we've covered. We started the book of Mark with the Jewish people waiting for a Messiah. God's people are waiting for a Messiah. At one point, they were on top. They were top dogs. They were powerful. They were wealthy. They were respected. When they were under David and Solomon, things were great for God's people. But then, things went downhill. There were a couple exiles. 
there were a couple, couple other superpowers that came on the scene that kind of took away some of Israel's thunder. And so Israel has not really been the same ever since. You had Babylon, you had Assyria, and now you have Rome. And so God's people are having to be oppressed by another group of people. And they're waiting to be back on top. And the way this is going to happen is that a Messiah is going to come. A Messiah is going to come and he's going to deliver them back to their rightful place of honor in the world. He's going to deliver them back to where they belong because they're God's people. Clearly, they need to be on top if they're God's people. And that Messiah is going to do just that. So they're waiting for him to come. But John the Baptist comes on the scene. And John the Baptist, he's not the Messiah. And John the Baptist goes around and he preaches repentance And he encourages people to get baptized and to repent of their sins, to get ready for what God is about to do. He's preparing the way. He's making paths straight for the Messiah who's about to come. He's getting people ready for it. And that Messiah comes in the person of Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus is born of a virgin. And he's baptized by John in the Jordan River. And after he's baptized, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days And he's tempted by Satan. Satan attempts to lure him away from the plan that God had given him. But it doesn't work. Where Adam and Eve gave in to temptation when they faced down Satan, where the Israelites gave in to sin and temptation when they were in the wilderness and throughout their entire history, really, Jesus doesn't give in to it. Jesus does not entertain Satan's temptation. He doesn't entertain Satan's plot. And so he leaves the wilderness. He is done with the temptation. He's overcome the temptation and he starts doing ministry. He goes around and tells people that they need to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. God is doing something in their midst right now. Something new, something amazing, something they never would have expected. And he's asking people to get on board with it. And he displays his authority in a lot of different ways. He shows us what the kingdom is like because he starts healing people. He starts casting out demons. He raises one little girl from the dead. And he teaches these incredible things that no one had ever heard before. And people start taking notice. The religious leaders start taking notice. And they're not too crazy about this guy because he's rocking the boat. He is disrupting the status quo. And so they start formulating questions to ask him. They start finding little traps to see who this guy really is and what is this guy all about? And can we get him to expose what his little plan is? Because we're not too sure we trust this guy. But every single time they have a little plot or plan to mess Jesus up, it doesn't work. He answers their questions correctly. In fact, he answers their questions better than correctly. Better than correctly. All the while this is happening, during these healings and teachings and exorcisms and all this crazy stuff and confrontations with religious leaders, Jesus has 12 guys that are following him. He has 12 guys that he's kind of taken along with him, and he's investing in them and teaching them and sharing things with them that other people don't get. But the thing is, these 12 guys, they're not doing too well. They're not doing too well. Everything Jesus teaches, they don't seem to get. They don't seem to understand. And so Jesus is constantly having to catch these guys up, constantly having to work in spite of these guys. But then there's one little moment of brilliance where for once in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples seem to maybe get it. 
maybe they understand for the first time what Jesus is trying to do. And when they understand that, Jesus then tells them what comes next, what he's been preparing them for. And that thing is that they're going to go to Jerusalem and that he is going to be taken away from them. He's going to give his life up. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are going to have him killed on a cross. But he's going to rise after three days. And the disciples hear this and they have no idea what in the world this means. It goes in one ear and out the other. And that brings us to where we are today in Mark chapter 12. We're kind of skipping over parts of chapter 11. So if you want to read chapter 11, you're more than welcome to, but we're going to skip over it a little bit. Mark chapter 12, what we read today and next week and the week after that, this is all going to be happening in a one-week time frame. A one-week time frame, the last week of Jesus' life. And this is all happening in Jerusalem. So Mark chapter 12, we're going to start looking at that first week, starting in verse 28. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Mark 12, verse 28. We're going to have verses up on the screen if you want to follow along there as well. We have Bible scattered throughout the room underneath some of the chairs. Feel free to follow along in any way you can. So Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all. So a certain scribe, one of the religious leaders, sees several confrontations that Jesus has with the religious leaders. A couple of them are in chapter 11. A couple of them are earlier in chapter 12. One of the confrontations is about taxes. They ask him a question about taxes, which anytime you ask a question about taxes, no one knows what to do. No one knows what to say. But Jesus clearly does. He gives them a great answer, and they can't catch him. They can't get him to say anything wrong. Then he's asked a question about the resurrection. What comes after life? A little technicality about the resurrection. And Jesus, once again, avoids the attempt for these religious leaders to slip him up. He avoids the attempt of these guys to get him to say something wrong. And then they question his credibility. They question his authority. And he establishes his authority. And so all these confrontations are happening, and this certain scribe in verse 28 sees all of it. And he sees that Jesus answers all these questions, and he's impressed. He's impressed with how well Jesus handles all these tough topics. And so he asks him, okay, you've answered all those questions well, pretty good so far. i got a question for you. What's the greatest commandment? That's a pretty difficult question. Because there are 613 commandments in Torah. So the guy's asking him, hey, out of the 613, if you had to pick one, what is it? Pretty hard question. Now, in Torah, there are 365 don'ts. So don't do this, don't do that. One for every day of the, every day of the year. Isn't that great? That's awesome. But 365 don'ts and 248 do's. That equals 613. And the guy's saying, pick just one. What's the one that's most important? Well, Jesus is not the first person to be asked this question. If you were here last week, we talked about Hillel. And Hillel probably did not get a very good reputation last week because Hillel said that a husband could justifiably divorce his wife if all she did wrong was burn his toast. That was Hillel. He was a religious leader and he taught that. 
So Hillel may have struck you as kind of a weirdo last week, but Hillel does have a good answer for a very similar question. When Hillel was asked that question, Hillel says, love God, do not to your neighbor what you hate, which is just a weird Yoda sounding way of saying, treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated. And then he says, the rest is commentary. Love God, do not to your neighbor what you hate, and the rest is commentary. And I love that statement. The rest is commentary. Everything else will work itself out if you love God and love your neighbor. That's the idea that Hillel is communicating. So what is Jesus going to say? Look at his response in verse 29. Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So it seems as though Jesus gives two commandments. The guy asks, what's the one best commandment? And Jesus responds with two. And I suppose some people could say, oh, you gave two. I asked for one. But really, this kind of is one commandment because you can't have one without the other. These two commandments go hand in hand. They absolutely belong together. And so Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the verse that Jesus would be quoting is Deuteronomy 6.4. And back a few months ago, when I first started, we looked at a very similar passage in the Gospel of Luke. And we talked about Deuteronomy 6.4 then. And so you may be thinking, why are we looking at this again? Well, Deuteronomy 6.4 is the most important passage in the Old Testament, by far, for these people. Deuteronomy 6.4, if you taught your kid one part of the Old Testament, that was it. Because you recited it multiple times a day. That's how important that passage was. And so Jesus cites that passage. And then he cites Leviticus 19.18, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. But as we saw in Luke back a couple months ago, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, he's not just talking about people like you. He's not just talking about people that live next door to you. Jesus expands the idea of neighbor, not just to the people that you agree with, but love every single person you come into contact with. Wherever you go, whatever you do, whoever God places in front of you, love them. Period. And the only qualification they need to have for you to love them is that they need to be a person. That's it. That's what they need to have for you to love them. And so Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. There's no commandment greater than these. And the thing is, the reason these two go in hand, hand in hand is seen in 1 John chapter 4, 19 through 21. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. You notice it does not say we love so that he will love us. It's we love because he first loved us. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. These two commandments go hand in hand all the way. 
And John even goes so far as to say that if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, then something's wrong. You can't have one without the other. If you don't love your brother, it's hard for John to believe that you love God. And to be totally honest, you can't tell flawlessly where someone's relationship with God is by their actions. However, I'll say this, and I'm not old, but in my time that I have been a follower of Christ, I've discovered that maybe the easiest and most accurate way at times to discover where someone is in their walk with Christ is to look at how they treat the people around them. It's that simple. How do you treat the people around you? How do you treat the waitress who messes up your order? How do you treat the telemarketer who calls at 645 when you're eating dinner? How do you treat the family member who takes advantage of you all the time? How do you treat the people you can't stand at work? That says a whole lot about where our relationship with Christ is. That's a pretty good barometer. It's not foolproof, but it's there. And it's valuable. So what is the scribe going to say to this? Look at his response in verse 32. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is the first religious leader in the entire gospel of Mark to agree with Jesus. First time in the entire gospel. All the other religious leaders, whenever Jesus gave a great answer, they didn't say, great answer, Jesus. I'm so glad that you said this. Thank you for your wisdom. When Jesus gave an answer to the other guys, they walked away sad that they weren't able to trap him, that they weren't able to slip him up. They weren't able to get him to say something wrong. And they totally miss the value in what he says. But this guy says, you're right, teacher. There's something different about this religious leader. He doesn't seem to be like all the other religious leaders we've encountered so far. And in fact, he doesn't just say Jesus is right. He even adds a little commentary of his own. Because he says that what Jesus says, loving God and loving your neighbor, he says that it's better than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Loving God and loving neighbor is better than ritual. It's better than jumping through hoops. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8 say this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The whole idea is that loving God and loving your neighbor is the number one thing that identifies a follower of Christ. It's that simple. That's the idea. It's not about rituals. It's not about jumping through hoops. It's not about following rules. It's not about traditions. It's loving God and loving neighbor because he first loved us. Not so that he will love us, but because he first loved us. That's the idea. Well, what is Jesus' response to the scribe? 
When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus sees that this guy is different. He's not like the other religious leaders. And look at that last statement. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, over and over and over and over, we've seen question after question after question about divorce, about taxes, about the resurrection, about this, about that, all these different things that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, have tried, and they've all failed. Every single question has failed. And they're out of ammo. They have nothing left to ask. There's nothing left that they can do. They're starting to realize that there is no question we can pose to Jesus that's going to make him shoot himself in the foot. It's just not going to work. He's proven that. And we're going to see what they do next here in the coming weeks because they realize that questions are not going to work anymore. So there aren't any more questions they can ask him. But that does not mean that Jesus is done teaching. Look in verse 35. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So Jesus moves forward and he uses this as an opportunity to establish his authority, to establish his credibility for saying all of these things. And he talks about Psalm 110, this psalm where David has this prophecy, basically, and he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Jesus's whole idea is that why in the world would David call his son Lord? Because many people knew and expected that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. That he was going to be a descendant of David, a son of David. But in that culture, there was never a time where a father would call his son Lord. So for Father's Day, sons, call your dad Lord. It'll be great. He'll love it. But there is no way that a father would ever call his son Lord. So how is it? that David would be referring to Jesus as Lord? Well, the answer is that Jesus is more than just a descendant of David. He's more than just a son of David. He's the son of God. He's bigger than just some descendant of a really good king in Israel's history. He's not just David's son. He is God's son. And that's why he can say the things he does and teach the things that he teaches. And that's why he has not once slipped up with those questions. Because he is God's son. He is perfect. He's not just any old guy from a nice family line. He's bigger than that. He's God's son. Look in verse 38. In his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Many of the religious leaders loved the perks of being a religious leader. They loved the ornate clothing They loved everyone wanting to talk to them in the marketplace. 
They loved that they got the seats of honor at the synagogue where everyone could see them and everyone could look up to them. And as I read this passage, I can't help but look back at that passage we read last week about James and John. When James and John came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we want to be at your right and left hand when you're in power. We want to be right there with you. When you take over, when your reign starts, we want to be there with you. We want to be right there where we'll have titles and we'll have authority and we'll have power. And I can't help but wonder, when James and John asked that question, are they picturing themselves in long robes? And are they picturing themselves going to the marketplace and everyone dying to meet them? Are they picturing themselves with the seats of honor, the seats of power, the seats of influence? And what does Jesus say to them back then in that passage we talked about last week? He says, that's not true glory. True glory comes when you're willing to serve, not when you just want to be served. And the thing is that true glory may not come right now. It may not come in this life. Because if you look at yourself as a servant and then you look at one of these scribes, it may look like they have way more glory than you do. Because they do have the robes and they do have the seats of honor and they do have all the praise and they have the reputation. But true glory may not come in this life. True glory comes from service. And the true glory that comes from being a servant, from being a follower of Christ, from being willing to get down and wash someone's feet, that comes in eternity. That comes in eternity. The scribes may have their glory now. But they won't have it forever. And Jesus challenges his followers to strive for the glory that doesn't fade. Strive for the glory that doesn't go away. Strive for the glory that is eternal. And that comes through service. Finally, verse 41. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came out and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now, in the temple, there was a public treasury. It was a public thing where everyone came and gave their financial gifts, gave whatever gifts they could. And naturally, the scribes that Jesus was just talking about, they probably loved that. Because then they could give their large sums where everyone could see them. And everyone could say, oh my goodness, did you see what Frank gave? And it was all dollar bills. I don't know why he didn't just put in, you know, a couple fifties, but he decided to put in fifty ones. But either way, it's a great gift that Frank gave. Look at that. He is so spiritual. I just wish I could be like Frank. He's a great guy. So the rich people probably love that because it's another opportunity to impress those around them. The same way the scribes use their prayers to impress people. These people use their large sums. To impress people at the public treasury. But then Jesus says a poor widow comes. A poor widow. Unsuspecting. Insignificant. Not really all that important. She comes and she puts in two small copper coins. Now the copper coins that Jesus would have been referring to were called lepta. Leptas. And a lepta was often considered to be basically the equivalent of one one hundredth of a denarius. And a denarius was a day's wage. So a lepta was probably about worth six minutes of work. 
That's about what a lepta was worth. Not very much. A lepta, or even two leptas, it's not really going to increase the synagogue budget very well. It's not going to do a whole lot for the synagogue building program. And so people, naturally, look at that and think, man, this woman really isn't contributing a whole lot, is she? This woman's pretty insignificant. If we lost her, nobody would really miss her. She's not doing a whole lot anyway. But that's not how Jesus sees her. Jesus looks closer. In verse 43, he says, He called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The other people may give large sums. They may give bigger monetary amounts than this poor widow. But Jesus is not concerned so much with the material that the woman gives. He's more concerned with the heart that's behind it. That's the idea. What gives this woman's contribution value is not how much it's worth. It's where her heart's at. That's what gives the contribution value. That's what makes it a good contribution. That's what makes it a significant contribution. So Jesus looks closer than just what you see on the outside. You know, as I read the story about this woman, I can't help but look back as well at the passage about the rich young ruler. If you remember two weeks or last week, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and wanted to know how to attain eternal life. And Jesus kind of humors the guy, and he says, okay, we'll do the law. And the guy says, I've done that. I've done all I can. I've followed the law. And then Jesus says, okay, we'll give everything you have. And what does the guy say? In fact, he doesn't say anything. He walks away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And his possessions were worth more than eternal life at that point. And so he refused to give. But then you look at this woman. She gives everything she has. She's the opposite of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler refused to give everything because he thought it was worth too much, even when Jesus prompted him to do so. But this woman, she gives everything, and she doesn't even have to be prompted by Jesus to do it. She just does it. She gives everything. And you know, that woman... Sounds like she understood verse 29. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds like she understands that pretty well. You know, sometimes we look at that command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we look at those four areas, heart, soul, mind, strength, and we say, okay, how am I going to love God with all my heart? How am I going to love God with all my soul? How am I going to love God with all my strength? And how am I going to love God with all my mind? And we try to find four different ways to love God. And we say, you know what? If I'm loving God in those four different areas of my life, then I'm in great shape. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is love God with every ounce of your being. Every single part of you. Love God. That's the idea. And it seems as though this woman, she gets it. She gets that. Where other people haven't gotten it, Jesus uses her as an example to say that she does get it. Because Jesus looks closer. He looks at the heart. 
and the heart matters. So when you look in the mirror and you think, you know what, I could never contribute anything to the kingdom of God. I am worthless. I am not possibly worth saving. Look closer. Because Jesus looked closer. When you think that there is no way that your life could be worth anything, there is no way that God would send his son to die for you or me, look closer. Because he did. And you were created in the image of God. And it may be impressive sometimes when we see people who are doing incredible things. I don't want to knock people who are, do, who are doing incredible things for the kingdom. But as you look at those people and you think, gosh, I can never be like that person. I can never be like those scribes. I can never give as much as they do. I don't have the talents that they have. I don't have the abilities that they have. I'm worthless. You're not. Because you can love God and you can love your neighbor. And that's what God looks at. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've blessed us with, the grace that you show us. And, and God, I can't stress enough that, that we love because you first loved us. And our love is not a way to earn anything. It's not a way to impress anyone. It's a response to the grace that you've shown us. Because when we experience that grace, the only response we could possibly have is to share that grace with others. To show them that same grace. God, I pray that you will help us to be servants. I pray that your spirit will guide us. I pray that our hearts will be striving after you. I pray that you will continually be transforming our hearts and molding our hearts to yours. Forgive us of our sins, God. We so often fall short. We so often mess up. But we trust in Jesus, and he didn't fall short. And he didn't mess up. And on the cross, even though it looked like he lost, if you look closer, he didn't lose. That cross was victory. That cross led to a resurrection. And that blood brings us victory as well. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege and the honor we have to be here and the privilege and honor we have to serve you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.